it's usual to start off a, a seminar or a talk to say <coughs> we have a great topic and we have a great speaker. Well, we have a great topic, we have a timely topic, and we have just the perfect person to speak to that topic. Um, the topic, as I'm sure you're aware, is Iran's nuclear program and international law, and what a great time it is to be talking about these things. I think there are two men in Washington, D.C., uh, by the names of Barack and Benjamin, who are talking about the same thing right now. Um, and our speaker today is Professor Dan Joyner, who is from the University of Alabama. Now, I, in thinking about how to introduce you, I, I thought about whether it would be fair to say that he is the leading expert on international law and nuclear uh, non-proliferation issues. And I thought, well, that's a pretty big thing <laughs> to say the leading expert. So I thought, maybe I'll say a leading expert. And I thought, okay, let me actually throw the other names into, you know, into the ring and see who else could I think about. But I came to the conclusion that it would be fair to say the leading expert. <laughs> um, so he is, he is the leading expert on international law issues and, and nuclear non-proliferation. He has written a couple of books in the last five years, which are really the place that everybody goes to um, when when we think about how to interpret the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, and when we think about how international deals with the issues of, of non-proliferation. Dan actually, though he is American, has spent as much time in the UK in terms of his academic career as he has spent in the US, because prior to going back to the UK, he did his doctoral work here in England at the University of Warwick, and he also taught international law at the University of Warwick for, for several years. Um, so thank you very much for coming you. back, Dan, and over to you. <coughs> Gosh, thank you, Davo. My good friend Davo uh, flatters me with that introduction. Um, it's a real privilege to be here, and I appreciate all of you coming out. I appreciate the ELAC and CCW programs for having me. Um, so let's talk about Iran's nuclear program and international law. I know that we're not all lawyers in this room. Sometimes I talk to rooms full of all lawyers, and so I'll, I'll talk a little bit differently because I know we're not all lawyers here, and and in that light, I'd like to begin by saying that I certainly know that for most people, certainly for those who work for governments, the Iran nuclear issue, crisis, whatever you want to call it, is not exclusively, or most would say not even primarily, an issue that revolves around law. There's a lot more going on. Uh, history, security, relationships, politics, regional, uh, security dynamics, all of that. But today I am, I am going to talk about the legal issues involved because I think they are important, even if they are not the issues around which the entire uh, situation hinges. And I think if you haven't already, if you will notice, both sides, meaning Iran on one side and on the other side, uh, in particular, uh, Western states, United States, Britain, France, uh, Germany in particular, they are making legal arguments as part of the diplomatic uh, backing and forthing. And this is very common, of course, that international law is used as a reference point in order to legitimize or delegitimize 
uh, official acts. And that's what's going on in the Iran nuclear crisis. Both sides are using as part of their argumentation legal arguments. And that is the part of the diplomatic dialogue, part of the situation that I would like to address today, even though, again, I, I realize that that's not all that's going on. So let's talk about the legal arguments that are being used by both sides in trying to justify the actions that they have taken, are taking, and say they may take in the future. Let's start with the arguments of uh, Western governments. I say Western because I'm, I'm not really including Russia and China in this because they, they tend to have a different argumentative structure and they tend not to be at the forefront of making um, arguments against Iran's nuclear program and sort of militating for more action. So when I say Western governments, I mean primarily the United States, Britain, France, and Germany. What are their legal arguments against Iran? And those arguments they use to justify their positions, their actions. Well, it starts, and I have to be brief about this, but it begins uh, in 2002 when it was disclosed by Iranian dissident groups that Iran had been for at least a decade uh, operating two facilities at Natanz and at Iraq that were engaged in undeclared uh, uranium enrichment uh, experiments and actual processing. And I say undeclared because these facilities and these activities had, had not been declared to the International Atomic Energy Agency as Iran was obligated to do under its safeguards agreement with the IAEA at the time. That was, and the Board of Governors of the IAEA found it to be, a breach of Iran's non-compliance, I should say, that is the word, non-compliance with Iran's safeguards agreements with the International Atomic Energy Agency. So that is uh, a legal argument made by uh, Western states against Iran. Once that issue was decided by the Board of Governors, it was decided that Iran was in non-compliance, the Board of Governors decided, and this was unique, this is the first time it had ever happened, that Iran was now under a duty to clear up all remaining questions about its nuclear program to the satisfaction of the Board of Governors, and that essentially shifting the burden to Iran now to prove that there were no unsafeguarded facilities, there were no unsafeguarded activities, there was no unsafeguarded or undeclared nuclear material in Iran. I've likened this in, in, a, in, in many times to proving a negative, that Iran has been given the duty by the Board of Governors, and again, uniquely, this has never happened before. South Korea was found to have had uranium enrichment experiments, but no such burden was placed on them, but it was placed on Iran, that it was to clear up to the satisfaction of the Board of Governors all questions about its nuclear program to essentially prove the negative, to prove that there was no such activities. Iran's failure to do this to the satisfaction of the Board of Governors has led in turn to the, 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 the file being sent to the UN Security Council and beginning in 2006 with Resolution 6096, a number of UN Security Council resolutions, um, the first, 6096, commanding Iran to stop all of its uranium enrichment activities. And then subsequent resolutions when Iran didn't do that, imposing sanctions that tend to take the form of 
financial sanctions, uh, economic sanctions, uh, uh, prohibitions on trading with Iranian uh, firms, individuals, uh, prohibitions on trading in uh, all sorts of uh, goods that Iran could possibly use in its nuclear program. And the most recent sanctions, just adopted this year, uh, actually, I should say, the UN Security Council sanctions have gone along with unilateral state sanctions, and that's what happened most recently, that uh, the European Union and the United States unilaterally uh, imposed sanctions on Iran's central bank, which has had uh, a very serious effect on Iran's ability to trade, uh, to sell its oil. So, and we sort of know this from the news, so I'm, I'm going over what happened with the sanctions after the uh, breaches of uh, safeguards agreements, um, which were discovered in 2002. Let's then go to the, the latest IAEA report. In November, I believe it was, of this last year, the most recent IAEA report by the, Secretary, the Director General to the Board of Governors and we have to be careful what we say here, but what did that report say? That report said that Iran has been engaged in a number of different kinds of scientific experiments, industrial developments that pertain to capabilities that could be used in a nuclear weapons program. I'm dancing around with words here because what I don't want to say, and this is not what the report said, is that Iran is now building a nuclear weapon. did not say that. It, it said that it's engaged in a number of these industrial, other scientific uh, uh, experiments and processes that could be used in a nuclear weapons <laughs> program. Uh, and so that has then sort of upped the ante because up till this last IAEA report, Western legal arguments against Iran tended to be that Iran was in breach of its safeguards agreements with the IAEA and that it is in breach and this is some of the arguments, most extreme arguments were that Iran was also in breach of Article 3 of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty which then justified moving the file to the UN Security Council which then of course has its own standard uh, to find that there's a threat to uh, uh, international peace and security. So safeguards breaches, breach of NPT Article 3, but this most recent IAEA report raises in, to the minds of some the specter that there's actually Article 2 breaches going on in Iran. Now, in order to, especially for the non-lawyers, I have printed this out, had this printed out for you to give you the articles of the treaty that I'm referring to. And I won't go into great detail, I don't have time to do that, but let me connect the dots for you here because it's important to understand what they're saying. Article 3, okay, let's start with Article 2. Article 2 of the NPT says that non-nuclear weapon states of the treaty obligate themselves not to possess, acquire, develop nuclear weapons. While we know that in Article 1, the five nuclear weapon states are allowed to keep their nuclear weapons. In Article 3, we find the safeguards provisions and the export control provisions that are supposed to then monitor and verify the Article 2 provisions. And 
In Article 3, Paragraph 4, we find the obligation on non-nuclear weapon states to conclude a safeguards agreement with the IAEA. So, to connect the dots, Western arguments have been that because Iran breached its safeguards agreement and, according to the Board of Governors, is still in non-compliance with its safeguards agreement, it is therefore in breach of Article 3.4, sometimes they say Article 3.1, relating to keeping safeguards agreements with the IAEA, and therefore Iran's Article 4 rights to peaceful use are no longer valid. You follow that? Let's go through that one more time. It's like I'm teaching a class. I know I'm not teaching a class, but uh, the argument is that because of the breach of safeguards, there has also been a breach of Article 3, and because there's been a breach of Article 3, Iran's Article 4 rights are no longer applicable. That takes some some doing uh, to make those arguments, but they are colorable. I disagree with them, but they are colorable arguments. If you look at Article 4.1, nothing in this treaty shall be interpreted as affecting the inalienable right of all parties to the treaty to blah, 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 peaceful use. In conformity with Articles 1 and 2 of this treaty, one of the NPT review conferences extended that to Articles 1, 2, and 3. And so that's the hook to saying that if they're in breach of their safeguards agreement, that's a breach of Article 3. If it's a breach of Article 3, it's also then uh, negating the recognition of right in Article 4.1. That then serves as the justification for Security Council sanctions and all of the talk about airstrikes and sanctions and, and sort of upping the ante. That's the NPT, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Law, uh, justification. Okay, so let's now talk about Iran's arguments, legal arguments. With regard to their safeguards agreements, Iran does not oppose, or I've never seen them uh, reject the idea that their keeping Natanz and Iraq clandestine was not a breach of their safeguards agreements. I've never heard them argue that. So I think they would probably admit that that was a breach, at least a technical I keep saying breach, but I mustn't say that because the word is non-compliance. In IAEA statute language, the word is non-compliance with the IAEA safeguards agreements. I write this correctly, but I'm not speaking it right. Non-compliance, safeguards agreements. Because, non, because safeguards agreements, a state can be in non-compliance for quite technical reasons. You can be in non-compliance with a safeguards agreement just because of an omission in accounting not reporting exactly the right amount of uranium that's in your facility on a certain day. That's non-compliance. That non-compliance with your safeguards agreements, as determined by the Board of Governors, does not in any way mesh with the material breach language, for example, in Article 60 of the Vienna Convention Law of Treaties. So we're not talking about breach of a treaty. We're talking about the IAEA Board of Governors finding that a state is in non-compliance. That's what the safeguards agreements say, and that's what the IAEA statute says. So again, while Iran would argue would not argue, I think that they were not in non-compliance with their safeguards agreement in 2002. What they would argue is that the obligation on them then, as the Board of Governors declared to prove the negative, was simply unwarranted. Uh, 
and especially that the decision to send the issue to the Security Council was unprecedented, unwarranted, and uh, and they would claim that all that since 2002 they have in fact been in full compliance with the terms of their safeguards agreements, not perhaps with the additional duties being imposed upon them by the IEA Board of Governors, which they say are ultra vires, the Board of Governors' authority under the under the statute, but they would say that they have been in complete compliance with their safeguards agreements and with the subsidiary arrangements which were negotiated with the IEA by Iran on things like declaration of new facilities. The new facility in Fordow, for example, something some called COM facility. Uh, there was a debate over whether their declaration was correct. Uh, Iran argues that even that was correct, the timing of their uh, declaration. So Iran would argue that they have been completely in compliance with the terms of their safeguards agreements since 2002. But the real meat of the Iranian argument is about NPT Article 4. So you remember that little acrobatics that I did a minute ago, legal acrobatics, uh, in making out the Western arguments. Well, let's start with Article 4 now. Nothing in this treaty shall be interpreted as affecting the inalienable right. Inalienable right of all the parties to the treaty to develop research, production, and use of nuclear energy for peaceful purposes without discrimination and in conformity with Articles 1 and 2 of the treaty. Also read Article 4.2. I can't read the whole thing, but what it says, paraphrasing, is that not only is there a right in non-nuclear weapon states to have peaceful uses of nuclear energy, supplier states are under, are under an obligation to help them, to positively help them to develop their indigenous nuclear fuel cycle. What Iran argues is that this inalienable right, as recognized in Article 4, is not made conditional in Article 4 upon full and demonstrated compliance with Articles 1 and 2. Rather, that the inalienable right is limited by the conventional clause at the end here, which says, in conformity with Articles 1 or 2, but that even if there is non-compliance with Article 3, for example, as the West claims, that this does not negate the inalienable right. Let me put this another way, uh, maybe make the argument clear. Think of Article 51 in the UN Charter, and if you know what that, that's about self-defense, and it says, nothing in this charter shall abrogate, I'm paraphrasing, the inherent right of all states to, I should know this, uh, inherent right of all states uh, to use self-defense, whether individually or collectively, if an armed attack occurs until the Security Council becomes seized of the matter and the state must give notice to the Security Council of its self-defense. So analogously, what Iran is saying is that the inalienable right to peaceful use of nuclear energy does not become extinguished by any non-compliance with Articles 1, 2, or 3 of the NPT, just like the inherent right of self-defense isn't extinguished by a state's failure to report an act of self-defense to the Security Council. You see, if you were to argue that, who would accept that argument? That the right of self-defense is extinguished if you fail to report it to the Security Council, or if you continue the right, if you continue your self-defense even after the Security Council has passed its first resolution. No one would accept that. 
So this is Iran's argument. That just because there may have been some non-compliance with safeguards agreements, even if you admit that that was a breach of Article 3, which they do not, that the right of peaceful use survives. And going to Article 3, the Iranian argument on Article 3 is that all Article 3 does is obligate in Article 3.4 non-nuclear weapon states to conclude agreements with the International Atomic Energy Agency. And that these agreements, it says, are to be of a character described in Articles 1 and 3 of Article 3. And this makes sense, just from a macro perspective, what, because the International Atomic Energy Agency predates the NPT. The NPT was signed in 1968. But the IAEA, as an organization, predates that by about 10 years. It's the late 50s. It was set up as part of President Eisenhower's Adams for Peace uh, initiative. So the Iranian argument is that the International Atomic Energy Agency safeguards which Article 3.4 obligates non-nuclear weapon states parties to conclude are separate treaties with an established international organization and that those treaties are fully independent from the NPT as treaties. This makes sense. They are, in fact, separate treaties. They have their own terms. They're bilateral treaties between the non-nuclear weapon state and this established international organization, the IAEA. So what Iran argues is that any non-compliance with a safeguards agreement does not then constitute a breach of Article 3 because the only obligation in Article 3 is to have an agreement of this character. And again, that makes sense because, as I said before, non-compliance with an IEA safeguards agreement can take the form of very technical omissions which do not at all map onto material breach in Article 60 of the VCLT. So you cannot say that the one equals the other, even in most cases. Is it possible for an activity to both breach your safeguards agreement and Article 3? I would say that would only happen if it was of such a character as to essentially negate the safeguards agreement. That would be a very high bar. So, we're getting all lawyerly now. I know the non-lawyers in the room, but this is what you came for. I told you that this was essentially about international law. But I will then try to go more policy in a minute. So the Iranian argument is essentially that the NPT, as a quid pro quo bargain between non-nuclear weapon states and, and nuclear weapon states, did not in fact make peaceful use conditional on Iran's compliance with its other obligations. In fact, what they're arguing is that in Article 4, just like in Article 51 of the UN Charter, what's happening here is the recognition of an inherent right that inures to a state because of its sovereignty. And that, and, and again, it further argues that it is not in breach of Article 3, that any non-compliance with its safeguards agreements is just that, technical non-compliance with safeguards agreements, that in the case of other states has been solved by the IAEA. Cases like South Africa, Brazil, South Korea. South Korea is a good example. In 2000, around 2002, uh, it was discovered that in South Korea they had been conducting uh, decades-long uranium enrichment experiments. Not on the scale of Iran, that's true. But uranium enrichment experiments, the exact same safeguards violation, and yet 
the South Korean case was not referred to the Security Council. So those are Iran's arguments under the NPT that it is not in breach of the NPT. Uh, and therefore, they argue that UN Security Council action is unwarranted. They usually don't go so far as saying UN Security... Sometimes they do. Go so far as to say UN Security Council action is illegal. That's a tough argument to make. Uh, I have made that argument in other contexts, uh, that UN Security Council action in some cases ultra-vires the, their uh, rights in the Charter. In this case, I find that argument difficult to make. For one thing, the, the UN Security Council standard, which is in Article 39, is a very broad one for determining when the UN Security Council can act. Uh, threat to international peace and security. And if the Security Council finds that there is a threat to international peace and security, then you're really you're removing the issue from NPT law anymore. Now it's just a question of has the UN Security Council determined that there's a threat to uh, breach of uh, international peace and security, and then they move on to Articles uh, uh, 41 and 42. <coughs> so I don't I I don't think I would agree that uh, because the NPT arguments fail, therefore UN Security Council action is illegal. You could, however, argue that it was unwarranted. But let's not go there any further. I did want to address the newest IAEA report that I referred to, the November report of the IAEA, which found that Iran had uh, been engaged in scientific industrial uh, activities, experiments, that could be used in a nuclear weapons program. Iran's primary argument is that this is all falsified. And it may be, I, who knows. Um, but let's, let's just say it's not falsified. Hypothetically, if it's true, they would still argue that all of the activities that the IAEA has found in this report that Iran is engaged in are engaged in by all advanced industrial non-nuclear weapon states. <coughs> Japan is a very good example every technical capability that the IAEA says Iran now has in its, in its report of November, Japan has had for decades. Everyone knows, it's sort of one of these little secrets, not really secrets, but not well-kept secret, everyone knows that Japan could make a nuclear warhead in a matter of weeks if they wanted to. They have all the technical capabilities. I'm not picking on Japan for any particular reason, I'm just using it as an example. Uh, Germany's another example. These are, you know, highly industrialized, highly technically scientifically capable states. They could create a nuclear warhead, they could enrich the uranium, they could do everything they needed to do to make a warhead in a matter of weeks or months. So the sort of shock value of, oh my gosh, Iran has a, uh, you know, a pit in which it's been conducting uh, hemispherical explosive uh, tests is a bit diluted when you consider that all advanced industrial non-nuclear weapon states can do that. Again, these are the legal arguments. What they're saying is that is not an Article 2 violation. If it's an Article 2 violation, then Japan's in violation of Article 2, Germany's in violation of Article 2, every, all the advanced industrial states are in violation of Article 2. So it can't be that. So there you have the NPT-based arguments about Iran's nuclear program. 
the West making safeguards uh, arguments, Article 3 and Article 4 of the NPT arguments, and in the end, Security Council arguments. While Iran responds with its own arguments about safeguards, its own arguments about the NPT interpretation and the new IAEA report. Let me give you my legal assessment about who's right and who's wrong. Uh, this is one of the frustrating things about international law. We tend not to have predictable adjudication of many matters that are important, and so this will certainly never be adjudicated by an international tribunal. But my own legal assessment is that on matters of substance, Iran is mostly right. That its interpretation of the NPT, its interpretation of its safeguards agreement obligations, its interpretation of the meaning of the new IAEA report, substantively it is correct. And that it does have, retains the right to uh, indigenous fuel cycle capabilities. However, at least prima facie, uh, I am willing to accept that the UN Security Council's Resolution 1696 and the subsequent re resolutions trump by virtue of Article 103 of the UN, uh, UN Charter. And that therefore, notwithstanding uh, substantive NPT obligations, the substantive NPT arguments fall uh, on Iran's side. Nevertheless, uh, the Security Council resolutions do prohibit Iran from enriching uranium, and therefore Iran is in uh, breach of those uh, resolutions. So, now what? Uh, here's where I'll try to get a little bit more policy-oriented uh, while maintaining a discourse in law. Now what? Options for the West. Now that we have arrived at this current moment. Well, they've already taken some actions. Um, the authorship of some of these is disputed, but we know that there have been targeted killings of Iranian nuclear scientists, as well as the degradation of Iranian uh, nuclear uh, well enrichment capabilities via the introduction of the Stuxnet virus. These activities are largely attributed to Israel and the United States. Exactly who did what no one knows. Well, some people know, but uh, not us. But there have already been some actions taken um, in a sort of a counterproliferation sense of degrading Iran's nuclear capabilities. Uh, further actions we often hear about, uh, well, there have already been sanctions. We keep hearing about more and more sanctions. Sanctions, I'll just spend a moment on sanctions. Sanctions, whether authorized by the UN Security Council or simply done unilaterally. And this is not a legal point, but for the political scientists in the room, and we can argue about this if you want, but my review of literature on sanctions, and especially with a target state like Iran that is uh, essentially theocratic, that is uh, authoritarian, and on an issue that involves national security and national pride at the highest level, the literature in international relations on sanctions would tend to say that sanctions are highly unlikely to be effective in changing the target state's behavior meaningfully. And so as a matter of the, empiric the empirical work that's been done on sanctions, sanctions seem to be a road to nowhere. Uh, the few success stories that there have been tend to involve broad-based 
strangling sanctions on the entire populace that do degrade the target state's ability to do what they are what they're doing but at the same time impose terrible collateral effects on the civilian populace so sanctions are only going to go so far and they're probably not going to work what about airstrikes well this is the big sort of uh, <coughs> elephant in the room uh, there could be targeted airstrikes by Israel most likely against Iranian nuclear facilities what would that achieve I won't get some of you know much more about the military aspects tonight I won't get into that but could they do it they could do something they could knock out some of them they could knock out the known sites that of course doesn't account for the unknown sites of which there are surely some redundant sites uh, and now we know that the Fort Al site a uh, large enrichment facility which has been built under a mountain which as I understand it is, is largely uh, you know, impenetrable not able to be destroyed but in any event the, the point is that airstrikes would potentially set the program back a few years I've heard it referred to as mowing the grass it, yeah sure you could mow the grass once but it's going to come back uh, it would not permanently disable the program and the political and strategic ramifications are almost unthinkable of what would happen the next day I won't go into that, that's not my area but it all sounds pretty bad uh, continued counterproliferation, degradation sanctions, airstrikes, it all sounds like pretty bad options what are the options for Iran? well, it could block the Strait of Hormuz as it's threatened to do that would arguably be illegal. There's a great post by Douglas Guilfoyle, our colleague on uh, Egil Talk, European Journal of International Law, blog that uh, my friend Dapo uh, edits about this, but uh, largely illegal idea of blocking the Straits of Hormuz. They could also enact countermeasures against, uh, against the West. Again, all bad ideas though. It's not really going to help anything. So what should happen? What's the best idea now for, for dealing with the crisis as we have it. And I am now getting away from law and I'm getting into <coughs> policy, but I think this is important. The way forward, I am confident, is a negotiated solution and the, the, the and sort of, what is it, tantalizing thing about it is we all know what it is. Everyone knows, everyone in, this, in the nonproliferation community knows what could be done to resolve the problem. And it would go something like this. What is the core problem right now? All it is is that Iran is enriching uranium. That's what the West has freaked out about from the beginning. But for Iran, that is sort of, that is a, a line they won't cross. I mean, they won't give up their enrichment <coughs> capability. It's a matter of national pride and all of that. But, and, and now, so now you have the UN Security Council saying you must not, Iran saying we want to. There's a way around that and it goes something like this. If Iran was allowed to keep its uranium enrichment facilities like Natanz and like Fordow, but it agreed to then send the, the LEU to another country like Russia for fuel fabrication and then have the fuel sent back to run 
the reactors, the new Bushehir reactor and the reactor in Tehran, that would allow for accounting. You would send the, the facilities would be safeguarded. You'd send the fuel out. It would be accounted for. You'd send the fuel back. It would be accounted for. You might even be able to negotiate with them to have the fuel then sent out for uh, disposal or for, um, well, disposal in some way. Um, that would allow for all sides to save face. And that, in the end, is what diplomacy is about. It's about saving face, about pride and saving face. And under a negotiated solution like that, Iran would get what it most wants, the national pride of having uranium enrichment on its soil, but the UN Security Council, the IEA, would get what it most wants, greater accountability for what's going on in those facilities and what the output is. Would it please everyone? No. That's why it's so good. Because the Israelis wouldn't like it, because Iran would keep its fuel cycle capability. Iran would not like it because they don't want to have to then send the fuel out to get it back. Uh, would the U.S. like it? No. They want Iran to have no uranium enrichment. But that's when you know you've got the right solution. Everyone hates it. <laughs> but in the end, it does satisfy everyone enough. So, uh, I, I've ended on a policy note there, but uh, I couldn't help myself. I think that is the way out. Um, I'll end my comments there and uh, open up to questions. <laughs>